Why have anti-gun Americans joined the wave of new gun owners? I'm Bert Cohen, and with your help, we are keeping democracy alive. What's going on? He's not breathing. Can you get a pulse? Barely. Call a code. Get Nambia back from the nurse's station. Heart's still working, means synapses are still firing. We just need to get a message too. The guy who really founded that connection between Israel and the evangelicals was Bibi Netanyahu. There's not going to be a war by Russia to conquer the United States. There's not going to be a war by China to conquer the United States. No country is going to conquer the United States. The United States is destroying itself because of the size of its military. So yes, there's a huge gap between public opinion and public policy, and uh, that people don't feel that they can do very much. I speak tonight for the dignity of man. Many years ago, a local Unitarian minister told me, Bert, there's only two things that really motivate people in politics, fear and reassurance. Never mind that being afraid can actually increase the risk of something bad happening. Fear is uniquely powerful. And as our guest Mark Fisher writes in his recent Washington Post article, in blue cities and red suburbs alike, firearms purchases soared last year to the highest level in half a century. It seems that since the pandemic loosened its grip, there has been more and more violence in our streets. After the recent shooting outside Nationalist Park in Washington, D.C., former President Donald Trump issued a statement from his Save America PAC calling out Democrat-run cities becoming overcome by violence and lawlessness, and he rebuked the Biden administration for, quote, failing the American people. End of quote. Of course, Trump has been a master at manipulating fear. Fear of the other, or immigrants, or even of normal American Democrats. In his article, Mark Fisher quotes Mark Oliva, folks spokesperson for the National Shooting Sports Foundation, who's, which tracks the numbers. It really was a perfect storm of concerns, he said, that drove sales. In his article titled, Fear on Top of Fear, Why Anti-Gun Americans Join the Wave of New Gun Ownership. Let's face it, fear makes us do crazy things. When people find themselves afraid, we tend to not make wise decisions. So more guns in an already gun-heavy America. And it's people who have been anti-gun buying the new guns. Fisher explains that the factors of the pandemic, police violence, calls to defund police fueled the surge of first-time buyers. Mark Fisher, thanks so much for being with us on Keeping Democracy Alive. It's good to be with you. Mark Fisher is senior editor at the Washington Post. He writes about many things, enterprise editor, local columnist, and Berlin bureau chief. He's covered politics, education, pop culture, and much else in three decades on the Metro, Style, National, and Foreign Desks. Join us for their discussion. What is happening? Why is it happening? What can be done? Or is the horse already out of the barn and there's nothing that can be done? Well, again, thanks for being with us, Mark. You write about many things for the Washington Post. I haven't seen this specific topic addressed elsewhere. What stimulated you to write this article? Uh, well, it's a good question. Uh, we actually, uh, I noticed that there had been 
a significant increase in gun sales last year in 2020. And on the one hand, uh, you can imagine uh, that that would be the case, given uh, what upheaval we saw in this country uh, last year from uh, the uh, George Floyd killing and the aftermath of the uh, violence that we saw in many American cities, uh, to just the general disruption caused by the lockdown, the, the food shortages, all kinds of grocery f- shortages early on in the COVID pandemic. Uh, and so that kind of disruption creates exactly what you were talking about, the fear uh, that often drives uh, people to buy guns, in addition to which it was a presidential election year. And that is often, uh, in fact, every time in recent decades that we've had a Democrat elected, uh, there's been tremendous fear among uh, gun owners uh, that uh, the Democrats are going to tamp down on access to guns or even confiscate guns. Mm -hmm. And as a result, you see a rush to the gun stores to stock up. But that's not what we saw this past year, what we saw was uh, a, a, a development of the gun buying uh, pool of people uh, so that it extended beyond those longtime supporters of Second Amendment rights uh, to, to reach people who had been previously opposed to gun ownership. And that's what got me interested in this story. Here we had. Uh, at least uh, in the early statistics, we were seeing an expansion of the pool of gun buyers uh, to to include a broader selection of Americans, including many people who had real misgivings about whether it's the right thing to own a firearm. Uh, that struck me as an important story, and so we uh, set out to go across the country, look at uh, a lot of different people, talk to people who had bought guns for the first time, and profile them in this article uh, to, to give readers a sense of who it is who are make up the new gun buyers in our country. Yeah, it is kind of a surprise given how, you know, around the world, I can't help but think that when people think of America and Americans, they think of guns. We have so many guns. There have been so many massacres. And for people who've been against this to be the gun buyers now, boy, that does say a lot. And it's really worth looking into for our future. So let's let's look at some of the factors unique about this moment relative to the surge in gun sales. The pandemic, it kept people in lockdown for many months. Businesses were shuttered. Downtown streets and shopping areas were left empty. Now America is opening up again. And one might not have thought this turn of events would in any way contribute to increased gun sales. But What was it about that bizarre, totally unexpected phenomenon? According to gun dealers and buyers with whom you spoke, how did that actually drive people to decide to buy a gun? In what ways, as Mark Oliver calls it, a perfect storm? Well, you had uh, people from various different political perspectives uh, heading out to buy guns because of fear, because uh, their lives had been deeply disrupted. So you had people uh, who were predisposed to worry about crime in cities, and they saw last summer uh, just the endless television coverage of violence in the streets uh, occurring uh, in in the wake of demonstrations against uh, police brutality. 
brutality and uh, protesting the killing of George Floyd. So you had people on the right who were going out and buying more guns because they saw cities in flames and they said, this is a danger to perhaps me, my business, my home, my family. Uh, so that's, that's kind of an expected result. The less expected result was, uh, as you say, the people who had opposed gun ownership uh, who went out and did the very same thing. Well, they had a lot of the same fears. They saw uh, this disruption in their cities, and while they often agreed, in fact, we talked to a number of people who were out there peacefully protesting uh, against uh, police violence, uh, who nonetheless went out and bought firearms because they saw that the police in their communities were either redirected to the downtowns where the demonstrations were, and therefore their own neighborhoods were left unprotected, or uh, they saw the tremendous uh, antagonism toward the police and the resulting uh, decrease in police patrols. Uh, we saw many police departments across the country reporting uh, huge increases in the number of police officers who were quitting, just outright resigning because they didn't want to deal with all this. Uh, and so people began to feel unprotected. Uh, they began to feel, uh, many of them told us that if they, they thought if they had occasion to call 911, they weren't sure if the police would come or certainly wouldn't come uh, quickly. And so that drove them to make that decision to arm them themselves uh, for protection of their families. So, uh, you know, it's the fear, it's the disruption, uh, and it's the sense of insecurity, I think, uh, and along with what we've seen as a tremendous decline in trust in our society, in basic institutions. So you put all of that together and you get uh, a feeling among many people that, yeah, I've, I've never liked guns, I've never uh, wanted to own one, I even opposed it, but now I need to do something. And that's very, very difficult for any uh, politician or uh, government to deal with. If you know if it, this this fear that that's being uh, manipulated and the the lack of trust in basic uh, uh, institutions. That's a but that's a big thing. It really is. And 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 the surge in gun buying is. Uh, it seems like just a, a sample of that, and that, and that it's, you know, that that lack of trust, decline in trust, uh, is a really big uh, situation that kind of covers a lot of ground in America right now. Your thoughts on that? Well, absolutely. I think that's at the core of a lot of what we're seeing in the, the political and, and uh, social polarization uh, that has uh, redefined our country in so many ways in the last uh, decade or more. And so uh, we've seen a, a tremendous decrease in trust in every institution from uh, religion to the, the news media to uh, obviously politicians. Uh, and so, and, but this extends often to, uh, to private businesses and now even uh, in some ways to police. Now, police do rank pretty high on any uh, polling that you see on, on what people trust, mm -hmm. uh, not, not as high as the military, but, uh, but nonetheless pretty high. And so when we started to see calls for defunding the police and we started to see police officers themselves pulling back from patrols or even quitting their jobs, uh, that, uh, you know, trust is really something that is, is quite um, easy to lose and very hard to regain. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's, uh, it's not something you can quantify really you can you can do polling about it but it does, that doesn't really get at that sense in people's guts that they need to do something that they need to move out of a community that they need to protect themselves all of those decisions that people make about where they live and how they live 
are based on a very uh, emotional, intimate kind of uh, sense that they have about what's going on around them. And, uh, and you know, social scientists have tried for decades to, to quantify that. It's very difficult to do. Um, but when you ask people in interviews about uh, what worries them, about what they're confident about, what they think is going to happen, uh, you get a sense uh, when, when, when people are scared. And uh, this is a country that has been pretty scared, especially in the middle class, for some time now. We've seen that in our politics. Uh, certainly the elections of both Barack Obama and Donald Trump gave us a strong sense that this was a country that was filled with people who were frustrated, who believed that uh, the system was not working for them, uh, and whose trust in institutions had dramatically declined. And so they were willing to take chances on two very unlikely presidents. Uh, and so we see that in, in many aspects of our society. Uh, and the, the, what people turn to in those moments, uh, they might take a flyer on a, an Obama or a Trump, uh, take a chance, and let's try this, maybe this will fix things. But they're also looking for things that they know will be secure, and uh, and that's uh, that's where the police come into play. That's that's that that's supposed to be a rock solid part of of how we uh, design and organize our lives and our communities. And when that is uh, shaken the way it has been in the last year, that leads to some of these decisions uh, that people say, "Well, I've got to take matters into my own hands." Right. Well, that sounds like a a recipe for for chaos. Really, I mean, people like. You know, my neighborhood is safe. People want to feel like their neighborhood is safe. They know their neighbors, and uh, they feel like they are part of a community. And when, when that trust in in that, you know, basic structure that we've all longed for, and has kind of been there. I mean, you look back to the, to the fifties, the days of uh, Eisenhower. I, I don't think there was as much of the uh, the concern about that. But uh, and. You know, back back then, uh, racism was was just swept aside, and and police killings of black people happened, but they <laughs> they weren't recorded on iPhones, uh, and and now we see it. And the police murder of George Floyd shook up the entire world, and, and since many Americans clearly agree that Black Lives Matter, and the summer of twenty twenty. People got out in the streets and said so in city after city. What about that made uh, people like Shakima Thomas, a social worker in, in Newark, uh, what made her feel afraid? And tell us about uh, who she is and what were some of the factors uh, that, pardon the expression, triggered her to feel unsafe and buy a gun? She is uh, certainly one of the more unlikely gun buyers we spoke with in the research for this article on first-time gun buyers. Uh, Shakia Thomas is a social worker in New Jersey, in Newark, New Jersey, uh, and so obviously she has uh, grown up in a city uh, that's had a long struggle with crime and violence. Uh, and she nonetheless, uh, or perhaps because of that, she had uh, never wanted anything to do with guns. Uh, in fact, uh, her family... Um, uh, was was accustomed to guns. She had several relatives who'd been in the military who owned guns, uh, but she, uh, as a lifelong Democrat, a liberal who uh, worked as a social worker, she wanted nothing to do with it. And um, she, you know, she told us about uh, her experience even back four or five years ago when Trump was running for president, and she remembered that uh, that time he boasted that uh, he could shoot somebody on Fifth Avenue and and uh, he'd lose none of his support. Well, uh, that 
got her to thinking that uh, there were people out there who might take his comments to heart mm-hmm. and might take his behavior at rallies to heart and uh, and come after uh, folks like her. And uh, she, she was afraid that the country was headed toward a kind of a, a violent explosion. So she got a gun permit back then, uh, but she didn't actually buy a gun until last summer. And uh, last summer she uh, actually took part in those protests uh, mm-hmm. after the George Floyd killing, and uh, and and yet at the same time, uh, she walked into a gun store and bought a, an AR-15, uh, and, and and later a handgun as well. So this is someone who was uh, really torn uh, and and was really uh, making a pivot against her own instincts and mm. her own practice. Uh, she had uh, she's involved in politics in Newark. She's someone who uh, probably would lose votes if she ran for office if people knew that she had uh, guns at home. Um, and yet uh, she felt this was something she had to do to feel safe as a black woman, as a woman in a, in a uh, city with a lot of crime, uh, and as a woman in a city where the police are kind of under siege. Yes, they they tend to, I think, feel that. The de- the uh, police do feel that. I mean, the, the phrase, huh, it was very unfortunate in my opinion. I can see where it came from, the phrase, defund the police. You know, police have had this, uh, uh, they have not been prosecuted for the crimes that they do, uh, the, the killing of black people. And you've no doubt seen the uh, the initial report uh, about uh, the killing of George Floyd. It was total lies. But uh, what, what were some of the perhaps surprising effects of that phrase, defund the police? I mean, people, the, the truth behind it, sorry to interrupt, people behind it wanted to, Shift funding to, I mean, there's so many examples of of people who are not mentally stable, who uh, the police deal with violently, and the, the funding could be used better by other organizations. But that phrase, defund the police, what were the effects of that? Well, it's had tremendous effects on uh, our, our politics nationally and in many communities across the country. Uh, certainly, the uh, many conservatives and Republicans uh, picked up on it very quickly, realized that it was uh, potentially a devastating weapon yeah. to use against Democratic candidates uh, because it uh, fed the notion that uh, Republicans have pushed for a long time, that Democrats are soft on crime, that they're unwilling to uh, face the dysfunction uh, in, in, in some communities uh, that the uh, Leads to violent crime, and uh, and so it, it had the desired effect for them politically. Uh, it uh, it also scared a lot of police officers and emboldened a lot of police unions uh, to mm. lash out. They look, uh, our, our officers are not being supported, uh, and uh, therefore, you know, some officers have decided to quit the force or uh, perhaps ease back on their enforcement of laws, uh, not be quite as aggressive um, in, in enforcing laws. And so that began this sort of vicious cycle of police pulling back, uh, crime rising. We had tremendous increases in homicides and uh, across the country and in big cities and small uh, over the past year, still nowhere near the levels that we saw back in the 1990s, but nonetheless a big increase over uh, what we'd seen in more recent years. So it's had a big impact uh, as a slogan uh, for both sides, and we've seen Democrats split. We've seen Democrats on uh, more moderate Democrats like President Biden, uh, who has a long history, as does Vice President Harris, of being tough on crime. Uh, She's a former 
prosecutor. He uh, has a history of uh, working on legislation that was tough on crime. We see them mm-hmm. kind of trying to tack back to the middle and say, hey, defund the police doesn't mean you're going to be unprotected, doesn't mean we want to uh, cut the number of officers. Um, trying to get rid of the use of that phrase, and yet we have people on the left of the Democratic Party saying, yeah, we do mean what we say. We do want to shift those funds from police departments mm. to social services to, to send officers out, uh, not necessarily to, to send officers out when uh, there's a, a, a nonviolent call, right. but rather to send out some uh, people who are trained psychologists, social workers, people like that. Well, there are cities that have tried some of that, and there are cities where some of those programs work okay, uh, but uh, there are no cities where anyone has uh, found that you reduce crime by reducing the number of police officers. That hasn't uh, been proven as an effective strategy anywhere, and uh, and yet that's what's happening in a number of cities. Uh, for those who may have just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. The show is Keeping Democracy Alive. We're talking uh, with uh, uh, Washington Post writer Mark Fisher about an article he wrote, Fear on Top of Fear, Why Anti-Gun Americans Joined the Wave of new gun owners. There's pretty much uh, a lot of people know that uh, a lot of people who hadn't had guns, who are opposed to guns, are buying them up. And one of the things I've learned through the years uh, about history is that we never learn from history. Michael Dukakis warned <laughs> that about looking soft on crime. It, I mean, he gave them, back in his 1988 campaign, a gift when uh, he looked soft on crime. Uh, and we just... <laughs> It's, it's so easy to simplify things. It's hard to, it, it, as H.O. Uh, Mencken said, to every complex problem, there's a simple solution, and it's wrong. And people still do it anyway. And we talked about, you know, psychology and therapy and counselors helping people. Psych- psychological therapy is a rather unscientific practice. Uh, there are bartenders that practice psychotherapy with varying degrees of success. You spoke with an unlikely therapist, Michael Cargill, owner of Central Texas Gunworks of Austin, Texas. You quote him as saying, my instructors and I became like gun therapists for people who never had guns or really didn't like guns. One lady came in here in tears with her teenager. She said, this goes against everything I believe in, but I need my family to learn how to protect themselves, end of quote. Neither bartenders nor gun dealers can be sued for malpractice. <laughs> what are your thoughts on his version of therapy? Well, uh, he wouldn't claim to be a, uh, a licensed counselor, but he—he's uh, not the only gun dealer who told us about having to have those conversations with uh, people who came into their shops and were really torn and felt uh, that they were compelled to buy a firearm to protect themselves, their families, uh, yet they felt they were betraying uh, their own positions, perhaps their parents, uh, the way they were brought up, uh, and uh, their uh, their community and the, and the people who are on their side politically. So this was a really tough hurdle for a lot of people to get over, uh, yet they were there they were getting over it in a gun store. So uh, they'd obviously made a decision, and, uh, and yet even as they began the training to use their uh, newly acquired weapon uh, properly, they, were, they very much wanted to be talked into understanding yeah. that this was a safe thing to do and, and that this wasn't going to, uh, so to speak, backfire on them. 
and um, and of course that is uh, you know one of the, the big responses we got to this article uh, was from people saying you know these folks may have made a decision out of fear and gone yes. out and bought their first weapon, but the, mo- the people most likely to die from the use of those weapons is themselves because that's I mean that's just the statistical fact that uh, weapons uh, gun gun uh, injuries and deaths in this country uh, are more often the result of people. Yes. Uh, people's guns being used against themselves and their families than against uh, an intruder or other criminal. Oh, it's so true. And yet, uh, again, you know, if you own a gun, you're in in your house. It's more you're in more danger. Actually, yeah, statistics show that that the gun is more likely to be used against you, or you know, a misfiring or shooting in there. I mean, <laughs> you know, when people suggest uh, the teachers carry guns, well, there's a little thing called crossfire <laughs> in a classroom full of young kids. Uh, you know, it, it's an easy reaction. Oh, you know, the bad guys come in and kill kids, so give the teachers weapons, but. Uh, it's more complicated than that. And and I would think that as with most, many anyway, personal insecurities, giving in to the fear, letting the fear have power over the individual as opposed to the individual working on having power over the fear only exacerbates the problem. Any thoughts as to what a real therapist might suggest to the patient to overcome the fear? And how much do you think th- this sort of therapy uh, that we spoke about plays into the growing wave of gun purchases. Well, I, I don't think it's uh, necessarily encouraging more gun per- purchases. I think it's making people who've already decided to buy a gun feel a little bit better about their decisions that they have misgivings about. Uh, so, you know, I don't think uh, any any amount of uh, uh, kindly words from gun dealers is going to uh, persuade the majority of the people in the country who who do not own guns and do not want to own guns, it's not going to persuade them to do so. Mm-hmm. Uh, but for those who have already made that decision, they're looking for not only guidance and technical training and how to uh, shoot and take care of their firearms, uh, they're also looking for someone to tell them, you've made an okay decision, mm-hmm. you're, you're not a bad person. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that, that uh, and a number of the people we spoke to who were first-time gun buyers did uh, Say that they, you know, they continued to be haunted by the feeling that maybe they made uh, the wrong decision, and they were looking for some kind of validation from uh, whether it was the retail clerk or the gun instructor or others around them. Uh, in fact, a number of the people we spoke to have joined gun owner groups and have kind of found a new social life uh, from their fellow uh, gun owners who go out and train together and go out and, uh, to uh, perhaps sometimes hunt together, sometimes uh, just go out to the range and uh and and that uh, several of them said this is uh, you know it's like a whole new world that they found and especially in a very lonely time like we've gone through as a country uh, through the pandemic uh, that uh, that's a significant boost for a lot of people no question about it people want to feel connected and as and i think this country in general people feel kind of disconnected being you know at their desks and at their computers but certainly the pandemic whew, made it a lot worse uh, and uh, as as I said earlier, you know, there's a uh, fear and reassurance, and it sounds like uh, the people who, I mean, this is overgeneralization, but they go into a gun shop fearful, and the gun therapist <laughs> reassures them, yeah, you're doing the right thing, you're doing the right thing. So fear and reassurance, again, two of the biggest politically motivating factors 
there are. One of the things that conservatives talk about uh, is prayer in classrooms. Prayer in classrooms arises from students' genuine fear of not doing well. (laughs) The term creative insecurity has been used to justify, accept, and find a proper place for this kind of fear. Fear is also used in industrial relations. Writing in Industry Week, John Dyer has a different angle. He said his boss told him, quote, fear is a good thing. Every employee should come to work every day afraid of the competition and afraid of being fired. Fear is a great motivator, end of quote. And Dyer responds, writing, fear can have a devastating effect on an organization's ability to make improvement happen. I did a story on working conditions a while ago at Amazon. Fear from above rules the warehouses. It's a very, you know, top-down, you better cover yourself, you're being watched every second of the day. It's, it's very good for the immediate bottom line, but in the longer run, as uh, John Dyer observed, fear locks things in place and inhibits ability to make improvements happen. How, how does fear, do you think, constrain improvements in business, for example? Well, uh, I mean, certainly I think it's clear that uh, creativity and imagination um, require a certain kind of freedom. People who want to be free not to fail. Um, it's interesting that uh, Amazon is, is an interesting example of both of these phenomena. Uh, certainly the warehouse workers who have a very regimented uh, work life in which uh, there's not a lot of room for breaking out of the patterns. I mean, they are sort of classic industrial workers and so they, they do report being under a lot of fear that uh, if they get something wrong if they slow down uh, they're going to be fired on the other hand uh, in Amazon's corporate offices uh, there seems to be a philosophy that Bezos has uh, written about or uh, discussed over the years uh, where he wants people to feel free to fail because that's where the, move, the new that's where the innovation comes from uh, so unfortunately Two-tiered, we have a very much uh, class-divided uh, system in this country and <laughs> perhaps uh, elsewhere uh, when it comes to uh, the use of fear. Uh, but we are all uh, subject to fear uh, in on the streets and in, in our cities and neighborhoods, uh, and that's something that cuts across class lines. Uh, and, and that's why we're seeing this increase in the percentage of Americans who have decided to own firearms. And uh, it's the first really significant increase in that number in, in decades. Uh, we, we're seeing the, the, the percentage of Americans who own guns going up from roughly 30% to roughly 40%. Uh-huh. And that's, that's a very significant increase in a very short time. Um, nonetheless, it's, it is a minority of the country and remains so. Uh, and so, and, and, uh, and we have huge majorities of the country that would want to see further restrictions on gun ownership and the ability to get a gun, particularly if you're uh, someone with either mental health issues or criminal record. Um, but nonetheless, uh, you know, there, there has been a significant change in, in people's attitudes toward gun ownership over this uh, traumatic period that the country has been through. Well, there certainly has. And again, for those who may have just tuned in, Bert Cohen here, the show is Keeping Democracy Alive. We're speaking about uh, uh, anti-gun people buying guns, a lot of guns. Our guest is uh, Mark Fisher, who writes uh, for the Washington Post, covering many different topics. And 
I, I wonder about, uh, uh, there's a lot of people, moderates, liberals, people on the left, have felt like there's the, the gun nuts out there. These people who seem to worship their guns, they sleep with their guns. They, they, they see guns not just as symbolizing freedom, but actually being freedom. That gun ownership and freedom are the same thing. My guess is, and, and you spoke to a lot of people who are new gun buyers, that that's not the case uh, for this this new large crowd of people that are uh, that had been anti-gun that are now buying guns. Yeah, this is a much more uh, sheepish, perhaps reserved group of gun buyers. They they they're people who, uh, for the most part, had been opposed to guns or just didn't have strong feelings about guns, uh, and so they're a little bit. Um, questioning about whether this is the right move so they're they're less likely to be out there demonstrating for second amendment rights yeah. uh and politically they tend to be liberal or democratic uh a good number of them uh are also from groups that are, may not feel entirely welcome in an nra kind of gun supporter crowd uh there's a significant uh percentage of the new gun buyers who are uh, blacks, Hispanics, other minorities, uh, also quite a number who are gay or uh, transgender. And so uh, we're seeing that uh, quite a number of the gun shop owners we talked to said that they're seeing all kinds of people coming into their shops over this past year who they never saw before, that their clientele had previously been mm. mostly white guys, uh, and, and that that has changed. So, so yes, there's a different kind of attitude that the new buyers bring to uh, gun ownership, uh, and uh, it's unlikely, it seems to me, that uh, they would be uh, joining in uh, the kind of uh, Second Amendment uh, protests that we see across the country of people showing up at state houses with their AR-15s. Uh-huh. Yeah, that, that does seem like a big, significant difference. And in terms of fear, I would be less afraid of uh, new gun owners who are there for protection. I think they're... Putting themselves at great risk, but that's not my choice. Whereas, uh, you know, the the NRA is not likely to pick up strength now. They're they've been dying for a while. Uh, a lot of their corruption and misuse of funding. I I don't see uh, that happening. But as you saw, people feel like they're they're connected. They've they've connected with other people who also felt uh, scared, and that's you know people want to feel uh, connected. And another thing, politically, authoritarians depend on fear. They, they thrive on fear. They have to have fear. I mean, you look at the authoritarians anywhere in, in history of the world, uh, fear kept them in power. But as with businesses, a republic is supposed to function for the many, not just the few. This, this fear that's, that's fueled the surge in gun sales what are your thoughts on how this might affect the stability of our republican form of government this not just the guns themselves but the the buy-in of fear the these the, uh, the spreading like a cancer of fear across the country how does that affect our stability 
Well, it certainly affects our politics, uh, whether it affects our stability. Uh, I mean, certainly with the January 6th uh, riots in Washington uh, were evidence that uh, this kind of uh, attitude and this kind of fear can get out of hand very quickly in a, in a very uh, unsettling way. And uh, and yet you could also argue that uh, the system held and that the uh, forces that needed to push back against, against this insurrection uh, were there and did their jobs and uh, there was indeed a peaceful transfer of power. Uh, but I think we're hearing in some of the reporting that's coming out just in this recent days uh, as, as a number of these uh, new books about the Trump administration and its final days are published, we're seeing an increased uh, level of evidence that uh, that things were very dicey around January 6th, and that uh, there was tremendous fear even among our top military leaders that the government could be toppled, that uh, Trump could pull off a coup. So uh, we can't be uh, overly sanguine, overly confident that, uh, that our, our system uh, will hold under any condition. Um, and, uh, and certainly... Uh, the American tradition of gun ownership um, makes us very different from any other country in this mm. regard, because as you mentioned, authoritarian leaders around the world uh, like to traffic in fear, but they also like to make sure that their opponents uh, are not really a threat to them. And so in almost all authoritarian societies, uh, there's a tremendous pushback against gun ownership, against uh, uh-huh. people uh, who could be a danger to the government being armed, uh, whereas in our country, uh, we've kind of encouraged that. And uh, and certainly uh, Donald Trump encouraged that, uh, although he was personally opposed to gun ownership through most of his life, uh, certainly never owned a gun, uh, has nothing but derision for uh, people who hunt and people who uh, collect guns. Um, mm. He uh, told me in an, in an interview back in 2016 that uh, he thought such people were, were stupid. Um, nonetheless, as he became a candidate and then president, uh, he changed his tune rather dramatically uh, to become a, a vocal supporter of Second Amendment rights and made that a uh, constant uh, theme at all of his rallies. So uh, he recognized that uh, there is in this culture a uh, regard for guns, a, uh, a love of, of firearms in some quarters uh, that uh, is an important part of the politics of grievance and the politics mm-hmm. of uh, mistrust. And that's what he has fed on throughout his his uh, late life political career, so he wasn't. Uh, he really didn't have the option of uh, standing tall against guns or even seeking moderate uh, gun controls uh, after the uh, Newtown shootings, uh, or after the uh, I think it was the Parkland shootings in, uh, in mm-hmm. Florida. Mm-hmm. Uh, Trump uh, came forward and, and actually did try to embrace some uh, additional gun reforms, gun controls, and immediately uh, backpedaled and. and Sure, and uh, the, 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 the when it comes to authoritarianism, certainly you know the the, uh, the gun lobby says, you know in, encourages gun ownership because they say, and it's true that you can't own a gun; only the government can have guns in authoritarian countries, and that is one thing that is is different here. But then again, people 
out on the streets, uh, not being a part of any uh, militia, as was intended by the Second Amendment, uh, can be a little bit more dangerous. And and the importance of guns in political power, uh, you talked about uh, uh, Chief... Uh, uh, head of the uh, Joint Chiefs of Staff, Mark Milley, uh, I hope I got his first name right, uh, saying how they can't, the, the rioters on January 6th, we have the guns, the military has the guns. And that's so that guns are very essential to uh, keeping power. And I had a college professor a long time ago who said that uh, define politics as the economy of violence. Who has the uh, you know the authority to have guns? That really does matter. So getting it out there on the streets now, and more and more guns in private hands, uh, kind of makes me a little bit nervous. Going back to another president a long time ago, a different America, when a different president addressed fear, saying, "Of course, the only thing we have to fear was fear itself." Though the fear that's stimulating the gun sales, the fear on top of fear, as you define it, is rampant. I don't see any people in political power even trying to address it as FDR did. Where are the politicians on the rise of well-armed fear? Well, I mean, I think uh, there's a, a bit of reticence in recent years among Democrats to uh, push for gun control at the level that many of them believe it should be uh, expanded. And certainly uh, there's uh, been a, a significant lack of follow-through when many Democrats run for office uh, pledging to crack down on guns, and then they get into office and we hear nothing further on that front. Uh, that said, they're being realistic uh, because uh, there's been no way to push any of that legislation through Congress uh, because of uh, rock-solid Republican opposition and some opposition among moderate Democrats as well. Uh, so we have, you know, in this country, we have a, a, this, a, obviously a cultural and political divide, and guns have become one of the markers uh, that uh, we use to figure out which side people are on. Yeah. And um, uh, that's, you know, obviously unfortunate that uh, the sort of symbolic meaning of guns uh, outweighs uh, the, the practical need for restrictions in our society. Uh, but that's where we are. And uh, it's hard to imagine that getting rolled back, even as we see virtually every other country in the Western world and beyond, uh, really restricting gun ownership to a very small number of people uh, for very uh, narrow purposes uh, in their societies. So um, it's hard to see how we would get there, even though you have large majorities of the country that want to get there. Uh, and that's, uh, that, that's reflective of our political structure where uh, we, for good reasons, have a society where uh, small populations in, in states uh, are their minority rights are protected by our constitution and uh, so the people who tend to live in rural states uh, have a lot more political power and they're able to stop uh, restrictions that uh, would indeed uh, constrict uh, the way that they live, the way that they uh, comport themselves uh, when it comes to guns. And people really do value freedom. They value personal freedom tremendously here and I frankly share that what about the race factor? African Americans have long been subjects of police violence, and pff, nothing's been done about it. In the late 60s, many 
uh, were tired of it and, and angry enough to form the Black Panthers, an armed reaction to police violence. Of course, that brought uh, more police violence. You spoke with Karen Williams Ader, uh, I'm not sure I pronounced her last name, a middle-aged black woman who said she was unnerved by the spate of mass shootings. And she knows that <laughs> just by being black, the risk of police violence is greater and that does concern her. She believes that by having many weapons at home, she feels more peace of mind. She doesn't have to rely on police. According to research on the realities of the situation, what is the reality? Do, guns, do her guns make her actually safer or just feel safer? Well, I think it is uh, largely a psychological impact. And in fact, many gun dealers would, would say so. Uh, guns are your... The gun dealers I spoke with for this story uh, nearly all said uh, that uh, the overwhelming majority of their customers uh, are never going to use that weapon anywhere except right. on range, if that. Right. Uh, and so uh, it really is a, a totem of sorts that people yeah. hold on to for uh, their own sense of security. And I think in the, in the case of uh, a number of the black uh, new gun buyers we spoke to, including uh, Karen Williams Adir, uh, this, this was indeed the case. She doesn't uh, expect to uh, uh, use the gun anytime. Uh, she doesn't uh, carry it with her. She keeps it at home. Uh, if she, like many of the others well, we spoke to, actually keeps her gun properly locked up. Uh -huh. So it wouldn't even be at hand necessarily if, uh, if, if someone uh, confronted her in her own home. Uh, and, and yet it gives her peace of mind to know that's there. She's, she's uh, got, uh, I think, three handguns and a shotgun at this point. Uh, and there's a certain element of personal identity and pride that mm. goes into that decision where she talks about, uh, she told me, uh, I'm not bringing a knife to a gunfight. And, and people like her, black women, need to be able to defend themselves, she said. Uh, so so there is, uh, there's a gap between the practical use of a firearm and just the psychological mm. boost of owning it, of having it there in case you need it. Uh, in that way, it's like uh, it's like certain medications that a doctor might give you uh, and say, you don't really need to use this, but just have it there in case you have that feeling or whatever it is. And uh, and so that, that kind of doctor's order to just have it as a standby, uh, it, it's, uh, it's the same kind of sensibility about a gun. Uh, it's, it's there not necessarily to be used. And given the staggering number of firearms that are sitting in people's homes in this country, well more than several times the population. Uh, there, there, you know, there are lots of Americans who have a, a whole arsenal at home, yes. and of course they've never used that. We, you know, we have we have way more homicides in this country than we ought to, but it's still something that's measured in the thousands, not in the uh, hundreds of millions, which is the number of weapons that we have. Yeah, the, the guns don't, I don't know, it's just, I think that's an interesting point, the psychological boost, because it really doesn't make people safer. So there were the Black Panthers, and they, uh, the violence that they, you know, protecting themselves, uh, it, it didn't go real well, uh, to put it mildly. Uh, but what about Asian Americans? Trump fanned the flames of racist hate by blaming China for the pandemic. We've seen the tragic results. There's been a lot more violence against Asian Americans. Any idea of the same that whether or not the same gun buying spree is happening in Asian American communities? 
we haven't seen any numbers that would indicate uh, a large expansion of uh, of, of uh, gun ownership among Asians. Uh, it, it's hard to know because the number of Asians in the country is not really large enough for uh, to, to poll on this kind of an issue in, a, in, a, in an accurate sort of way. Uh, so we're going with largely anecdotal reports, uh, industry groups, uh, individual gun dealers, uh, and, 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 and they don't report seeing any enormous boost in the number of Asian Americans who are coming out to buy guns. Um, you know, that said, there may be some increase, but it doesn't seem to be widespread. That's kind of reassuring, I must say. And uh, you cite uh, Jabril Battle, who's a 28-year-old account representative at a financial services company in Los Angeles, who had always believed that, quote, anyone who had a gun was a gun nut, end of quote. He said, I really bought into the whole idea that more people having guns, the more likely it is for people to start killing each other. How did the pandemic reshape his thinking away from that? Well, he, as, as the pandemic uh, developed and the lockdown happened, and uh, if you remember back, it's, it's only a year ago, and yet it, it may seem like sure. a, a, a distant <laughs> nightmare, uh, there were real questions in many communities about, uh, is there going to be enough food? Uh, we, we all remember going into those supermarkets and seeing the... the sure shelves wiped clean, uh, not just of uh, hand cleanser, but also mm-hmm. of uh, certain categories of food. And so he got to worrying about whether uh, if food and water become scarce, uh, that he was going to deal in his own community with what he called a Mad Max situation, to, mm-hmm. to sort of, you know, like the walking dead, but not with the zombies. And so uh, if you have that attitude, if you perceive your world and your neighborhood in that way, uh, then you're thinking in that kind of uh, fantastic Hollywood uh, kind of manner, uh, then it starts to make sense that the, the people who are going to survive are the ones who armed themselves, who are willing to protect themselves. And uh, so, he, you know, the way he put it was, do I want to be the person who has a gun or doesn't have a gun? And so he went out and bought a Beretta and then a, a Glock pistol as well. Uh, and, and, and yet he was very frank with us and very open about the fact that uh, being a black man in Los Angeles with a gun uh, put him at high risk. So he was totally cognizant uh, that he was in some ways making himself more at risk by getting that gun. Um, and, uh, and yet he kept imagining the scene of being stopped by a white police officer or any police officer and, uh, and having to say, uh, yes, I have a gun in my car and, uh, and, and, you know, wondering what the reaction of an officer would be. An officer would probably be a little bit freaked out, a little bit scared himself. And so that's uh, that's a recipe for disaster. And yet, nonetheless, uh, Battle decided that uh, he it, it was more important for him to be armed to protect his home uh, than it was for him to worry about that risk of uh, having the gun in the car when he's uh, out and about in the city. Uh, so, you know, a tough calculus, and yet he he uh, feels he made the right decision. And he does have that uh, sense of, of community now because he knows other people who have guns. And aside from blacks and uh, Asian Americans, uh, women feel endangered also because of their gender. That's a fact. And you quote a transgender person, Savannah Grace. She said, flying a rainbow flag at her home showed that people at her house are activists. 
She now defines herself as a gun person who hates gun people. What does that say about our topic? It says that uh, we live in a uh, somewhat confused society that uh, where people act in very contradictory ways. And so here was someone who, uh, uh, Savannah Grace lives in, in Richmond, Virginia, and uh, she lives in a, in a house with a number of other uh, transgender people and uh, queer couples. And, and, uh, and, and so she's around people who feel threatened. She's also around people who feel that uh, gun ownership is, is a threat to them. And so here's their friend who goes out and buys herself a, a Glock handgun uh, and keeps it loaded in her dresser and, and, and handles it every day to make sure she's comfortable with it. So that's not going to go over too well among some of her friends. Mm. Uh, at the same time, she feels uh, more confident about going out uh, when she knows that she has that gun at home. And, and uh, she signed up for a concealed carry course uh, through an organization that didn't even exist uh, just mm. recently called Armed Trans Women. Uh, so this is clearly, you have a, a somewhat shifting society when you have groups like that uh, who are arming themselves, and it presents an interesting issue for people who are opposed uh, to her politically, people on the right who are traditionally the defenders of the Second Amendment. Mm -hmm. They've always said, we want everybody to be armed. Well, now they're being confronted with the fact that people who they think of as uh, their opponents or even enemies are going out and getting armed. Are they still okay with that? Uh, that's probably a good next story to do. Well, certainly they felt that way about the Black Panthers back in the 60s. Well, we didn't want those people to be armed either. I, it is interesting. We mentioned that, you know, uh, people imagined Obama was going to take their guns. Uh, and I wonder if people feel this about Biden. The question is, did gun sales drop when Trump was president and are just now surging again? Yes, that happens every time. Uh, I mean, that that's a dependable statistic that we've seen uh, going back uh, half a century. Whenever Democrats are elected, uh, especially those who have made anti-gun comments in the past uh, or have supported uh, even mild restrictions on gun ownership, uh, you see enormous surges of gun buying in the months prior to the election and then around the election itself. Uh, and, and we saw that with Biden just as we did with Obama, just as we did with Clinton. And um, and yet, uh, Joe Biden is, uh, although he's been committed to gun control measures for his entire career, uh, we haven't seen him make any move in that direction mm. and learn from people around him that that's not a priority for them because they don't think it's politically practical to make much progress there. Uh, but And so the, the gun, I think you'll see in the 2021 gun purchasing numbers uh, that uh, that peak we saw last year will come down somewhat. That's been the pattern through uh, most uh, recent administrations. Uh, but yes, uh, to answer your question, the, the uh, gun buying numbers did come down during the Trump years, uh, and because there wasn't that fear being drummed up by uh, some of the conservative media that uh, the Democrats were coming for your guns mm. and con you know, go door to door confiscating them, which obviously is never going to happen in this country. <laughs> That's for sure. And it's amazing to me how the power of fear Republicans in the 2020 election, they must have done some research to see what would best stimulate fear and rage. They found that it, blatantly absurd, though, it was saying that the Democrats were engaging in human trafficking, abusing children it was something that was universally feared. 
I wonder what the results were of this kind of tactic, and if you know this, the fact that fear works uh, is is likely to to increase uh, uh, the use of fear again. Well, fear does work in politics, and uh, certainly no no one party, no one side has a monopoly on it. Yeah. But uh, but but in in our recent history, uh, certainly Republicans have been more uh, yeah. savvy about using fear as a political weapon. Uh, there's no reason to think they would turn away from that, uh, since it's been reasonably successful. Um, and uh, so, you know, I, I I don't see a scenario where either party would uh, wake up one day and say, uh, you know, we're not going to use uh, these kinds of emotions that are clearly effective in getting at people's insecurities and, and getting them to act politically on those insecurities. Uh, if it works, they're going to do it. Of course. One last question, Mark Fisher of the Washington Post. Do you see any movement away from the surge in gun ownership? I, I haven't. There are there are not yet numbers for this year, twenty twenty one, and so it's uh, statistically, I, it, there's no way to say that that's what's happening. Just anecdotally, from talking to gun dealers, they say that the 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 major surge that they saw uh, prior to the twenty twenty election, and then uh, around the time of uh, Biden's inauguration and the insurrection and all of that, uh, that 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 has calmed down, mm. and uh, they're not seeing the kind of uh, panicky gun buying that they saw earlier this year and late last year. Uh, so, you know, will that hold for the rest of the year? It'll depend, I think, in, in good measure on uh, what's happening in our country and around the world. Um, but, uh, you know, if, as you track people's insecurity and track their mistrust, you probably get a pretty good sense of where gun sales are going. Mm. Yeah, and pushing for sensible gun laws doesn't doesn't seem to work. It's just never caught on. If it, if it didn't happen after, you know, the Newtown massacre of what thirty little kids, I don't know if it'll it'll ever happen. Well, it's been fascinating discussion, Mark Fisher of the uh, Washington Post, and uh, shedding some light into an area that uh, it's been a little bit surprising how people that opposed to guns are the ones buying them up now. Thank you so much for being with us and keeping democracy alive. Thank you, Bert. Roses, greens, and mermaid meat Running out of things to eat Little boys having way too much fun Playing with the big boys gone I'm scared for the children And on the day the last bird dies There won't be a drop from the big square eyes An old man with his eyes like glass Kisses the last blade of grass Yeah, I'm scared for the children One more game before 